as I read this morning's scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue now in our worship by just giving our heart and mind and our attention to the inspired and authoritative word of God that you've given to us. Lord, as always, we ask, please speak now by your Spirit's ministry through what you have already spoken in the written word of God. Bless this time, and may we each hear your voice accordingly, and we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You know, sometimes a father may tell their son as part of his training as a young man, and my father would never have told me such a thing. I got this idea from the internet. Don't ever let me hear that you started a fight, but if you are forced to fight, I would much rather hear that you're the one who finished it. And listen, certainly I think there is a reminder in such things like that, that we should not be those who are instigators. We should not be those who are fighting for unnecessary reasons. However, the truth be told, there are indeed also times when it is the right thing to stand up for what is right. It's the right thing to protect your loved ones, to fight maybe for a good purpose or to resist wrong or evil doing or even to resist a bully if that is what is necessary. And I think our text is kind of dealing with that aspect in some ways. Paul here is encouraging young Timothy to fight the good fight, to fight the Lord's battles, and to therefore finish well. If you look with me in verse 18 there, he says to him, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. So he's speaking to him like a father to a son, but also much like a military commander, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them those words you've heard through those prophetic utterances, that by those truths you may, look what he says, verse 18, wage the good warfare. So Paul wants his spiritual son, we might say, to be a good soldier and to be victorious in battle. Again, here we find Paul referring to Timothy as son Timothy. Paul viewed Timothy like a spiritual son in the Lord. He became like a father figure in Timothy's life to help Timothy in his walk with the Lord, like a father figure to help mentor and teach and train him in ministry. And Paul related to him in that manner, not only caring for him as a father does a son, but as any good father will do also, trying to really cultivate Timothy's character, to do what he can to train Timothy, to help him be prepared and to learn and ultimately to become the best and his highest potential in his spiritual life, to to mentor him and develop him. And sometimes that meant, therefore, that Paul would have to be as a father figure, you might say, 
a bit more stern on occasion with Timothy as a father figure to kind of toughen him up a little bit, to do what was necessary sometimes for him as a young man to realize that he had to toughen up on occasion to work through hardship. Because as any father understands, in order for Timothy to be a strong man, it was essential that at times he not be soft in certain areas, that he not become weak or overly passive or cowardly. And a father understands that part of life includes some battles. And that part of being a male and masculinity means at times that God's created you with a stronger backbone and bigger muscles and a little bit more able to bear difficult things. And that sometimes it is absolutely necessary to kind of soldier onward to fight through things. Now, Paul, we saw in the beginning of the chapter, has already given Timothy a charge or a command. He said back in the beginning of the chapter to remain there at his post in Ephesus, where he was pastoring a local congregation, and it seems also providing some helpful oversight and leadership to other congregations that had come out of the church of Ephesus as well. And he had strongly instructed Timothy to remain there in order to hold the line biblically, to make sure that they stood on track with the scriptures, and that he did not allow false teachers to teach anything outside of sound doctrine and that he would seek to hold the line. And Timothy was indeed in a difficult place. There were lots of battles that he was dealing with, and many had to, as a leader, sometimes confront people who were doing what was wrong or confront people who were doing what was harmful to others. And it seems by default, what we pick up in the New Testament, that Timothy's character, just his disposition, he just seems to be a little bit more of of a passive personality. Paul seems to have been someone who was a very strong leader. He was very assertive. He wasn't afraid to get aggressive and kind of... But Timothy just seemed to be wired a little bit differently. And Paul, understanding that, we find him on occasion, and once again here, kind of strongly urging him to kind of be a little bit more steadfast and stern and kind of trying to bring out of him the courage that was there within him as a man of God, and that he would take serious his role and his duty. And so that's why we find him here in verse 18, speaking to him as a father does to a son, but saying to him, look at verse 18, this charge I commit to you. And the language there is a military command. I'm giving you an order, son. I'm not only your father, I'm also giving you an order, even as a commanding officer would give to a soldier, and obedience is essential. Timothy needed to take responsibility and to take it very seriously and to realize that his duty was essential to faithfully fulfill. And the reason is on a battlefield, a soldier is engaged in conflict and challenges, and at times he's tired and it's difficult, But he's saying, Timothy, we are in a spiritual battle here. There is the war for human souls and things that are important. And with courage, you have to be willing to fight the good fight. You have to be willing to do what it takes at times to wage a good warfare against what is evil and what is wrong without retreating, without hiding in your foxhole and whining and complaining, but doing what is necessary to engage in the charge, Paul says here, this military command was in accordance with, he says, verse 18, or in connection to, he says, the prophecies previously made concerning you. 
Now, prophecies are basically messages from God given and spoken forth by God through human servants as his instrument. Through the ministry of God's Holy Spirit, God puts into the mind of a person, one of his servants, his thoughts, his words, in order for them to speak what God wants spoken. So this is a ministry of God's spirit. If I could illustrate in some ways, it's kind of as if as human beings, we become like a telephone, like an instrument or device that God uses. Again, as I speak, it's my thoughts, it's my words. The telephone just becomes the device or instrument to transmit or to convey to whoever's listening on the other side that which I'm thinking or what my words are. And so prophecy, in a sense, is like God using one of his servants like a telephone to some degree. It's God's thoughts. It's God's message. It's God's word. He simply conveys it through a human vessel to speak what God wants spoken. And prophecy can understand it can be predictive in nature. Often we hear about prophecy and we instantly think kind of right away to predictive telling the future. And that is one element of prophecy. Certainly prophecy can be predictive. We see that all throughout the Old Testament as well as places in the New where God speaks of something regarding the future that's coming. And God can do that because the Bible says not only does God know the beginning from the end, the Bible says that God is the beginning and he is the end. So as we live life one day at a time, and it's almost like a, a living out a book, all of our days were written in God's book before one came to be, but we kind of live life a page at a time, a day at a time. But God's outside of the time continuum. And so therefore, God's already in the future. God's already been in the past. He is also the great I am presently. And so God can speak in the present tense of something that's going to happen a month from now, a year from now, seven years from now, or a hundred or two hundred or a thousand years later. And God can speak that because he spans all time and eternity. So for God, in a predictive sense, to give a prophetic word about something is no problem for him. But prophecy isn't just limited to predictive things. It also, at times, prophecy can have an instructive element in nature where God reveals something to one of his servants or to his church, or where God speaks in a way maybe to give direction. And we see this in Acts chapter 13 as the Holy Spirit was working among the early church. It says they were gathered together and they were seeking the Lord, praying, it seems. And it says that the Spirit spoke, saying, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them to. In other words, it seems as they were seeking the Lord and praying, God gave a prophetic word to one of those who were in the midst of that prayer meeting and they spoke forth that prophecy that Paul and Barnabas were to go out and they were to engage in their missionary and church planning work. God gave a directive word to the church. And prophecy also can even just be sort of a timely word to maybe stir up action, to prompt a person to act in obedience, to empower, to, to caution someone of something dangerous and to make them alert and be attentive and, and pay you know, close attention to what maybe could be a dangerous thing, or even at times just to give a comforting word to someone. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says, He who speaks prophecy speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort unto men. So we can distinguish a biblical, spirit-led New Testament prophecy by what the word of God gives in definition. When a prophecy is given from God's spirit, it is gonna do one of those three things. It is gonna edify, that is gonna be to build people up. 
It's going to strengthen people in the things of the Lord. It will bring strength to a spiritual life. Or it will bring exhortation that it's going to stir someone to action or to exhort someone to pay attention and be alert of something risky or to caution them of something dangerous. Or it's going to bring comfort. That is, it's going to console someone. It's going to be a healing word to minister to them, maybe when they're down, or to speak some word of comfort to remind them God is with them in a hard hour or something of that nature. And 1 Corinthians 14 gives us a whole chapter of biblical instruction how the spiritual gift of prophecy operates among the church so that we know how it operates and when people say it's operating, but it's really outside of the confines of Scripture. So God gives us a whole chapter there about this ministry of the gift of prophecy. And apparently at some point earlier in Timothy's Christian walk, Paul alludes to here in verse 18 that there were prophecies previously made concerning Timothy. He'd experienced this in some way. So whether that was God had spoken messages prophetically directly to Timothy through a prophecy that came from another Christian brother or sister, or maybe God had spoken a prophetic word about Timothy unto others. Maybe when the church was gathered, there was a prayer meeting going on and, and a prophetic word was spoken about Timothy. God had no doubt spoken things regarding Timothy's future and how God was going to use him, perhaps maybe the ministry work that he would be involved in or what God's plan was, how God was going to work through Timothy's life. Maybe some of those, and he says prophecies, notice plural, maybe some of those prophecies were in connection to, Timothy, you're going to be in a difficult place, but God will empower you and have courage. And God hasn't given you a fearful spirit, but he's given you a power and love and of a sound mind. And Timothy, stay the course. And maybe perhaps Paul's kind of just here reminding him of those very things. It's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 4, when we get there, in verse 14, Paul says this to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. In other words, it seems in some way Paul's alluding to something that transpired when the hands of the eldership, that is the overseers, the spiritual leaders in the church, had laid hands on Timothy and they were praying over him that in that moment, it seems at that point, a spiritual gift was imparted to Timothy and a prophetic word was spoken over his life, perhaps in regards to that pastoral gift or how God wanted to work through his life. And look, we all need, as God's people, to hear from the Lord. God wants to speak. God is always seeking to communicate we have to be open to hearing his voice because hearing his voice is incredibly valuable. We want to hear what God has to say to us. And at times, God will indeed speak through a prophetic word, through the gift of prophecy. He may speak something to us or about us. The Bible simply says that we're not to despise prophecies, that we're simply to use discernment and to test them according to the word of God and spiritual discernment, and then we're to hold fast to those prophetic words that are good. That is, they line up, hey, that is genuinely from the spirit of God. And I've distinguished that and, and that we would hold on to those words from the Lord because what God speaks, folks, is incredibly reliable. And when God says something to us, that is a promise that we can be guaranteed he has the power to perform, whether it's something in our future 
or whether it's something in our present and God speaks a word and we think, I don't see how in the world, Lord, in my situation or in my, I just, but if God's spoken his word and he gives a word to comfort or to exhort us to do something or to speak to us a word of directive, we're to yield in faith and trust that God has the power to perform what he promises and what he speaks and what God asks and directs us to do. And the word of the Lord is something that can and should empower us as Christians to stay the course, to stay on track with what God is leading us to do in right paths of obedience, or just at times to keep going in faith. When we're wearied and it doesn't seem like things are going to transpire, Paul says, Timothy, I'm charging you in direct connection, he says, to these prior prophecies. When you know God spoke to you, when we were all aware God spoke something about you, Timothy, he says, I'm just simply reaffirming what the commander in chief already said to you. And I'm just reminding you of his order and simply reminding you what the Lord has already said. He says, so that by knowing what he spoke and relying on what he said, you will then be able, he says, the end of verse 18, with the strength of that assurance by the word of the Lord as your confidence, he says, you'll be able then to wage the good warfare. Timothy, let this be your encouragement. God's promises, what he's spoken, that will help you stay on track. That will help you keep fighting the Lord's battles. And notice, he calls Timothy to wage, and notice the Bible says it, not me, the Bible says a good warfare. So from God's estimation, there are some wars, we think all wars are horrible. God says there are some wars that actually are good. The, the Greek term literally there is a beautiful, beneficial warfare. And the idea is that when evil is being propagated, and the Bible speaks of spiritual warfare, it is a beautiful, good, beneficial thing to engage in warfare, to fight the good fight, to fight the Lord's battles. And look, folks, we have to realize as God's people, we are truly in a spiritual war. There is a spiritual war that is transpiring among the realms of the spirit where the devil and his demonic forces are continually seeking to resist the work of God, to overthrow the faith of God's people, to attack and assault the work of God's spirit and the good things happening among the realm of the kingdom of God. And we have to be alert to this reality, that it is happening, and we have to function in light of this, that we are not in a playground, we are in a battleground. And that this is just a reality of the spiritual life, and we have to engage in the fight lest we be defeated, lest we be overcome. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, listen to his words. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We experience it in flesh and blood, right? Oh, these hassles. And um, why is this going on? And, and, and sometimes we, ex we experience spiritual warfare in the realm of the spirit in the natural realm. Because this is where it manifests itself in the resistance and the heartache and the problems and the hassles and life's difficulties. But he says, look, the true struggle, it's not against human things, but against the principalities, against the authorities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, 
and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, in light of that, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Do you notice the tremendous military language the word of God uses? Paul, no doubt thinking of the, you know, the, the Roman Empire and the incredible power, the, the force that the Roman military was and the Roman soldier, and he's describing this armor and, and how they would dig in and resist and they would hold the line and how they were such a powerful force militarily. Paul uses all that as a word picture to help us realize, look, same with us. There are attacks and battles and our enemy has schemes and tactics and, and he's a wise strategist in a military conflict. He studies us and he looks for ways to bring resistance and attack and fires his arrows. And he says, we have to be prepared. And most of all, he keeps reemphasizing again and again, stand, stand your ground, hold your line, use the word of God, be open to the ministry of God's spirit and prayer and these spiritual things to protect yourself. And he says, this is absolutely essential so that you can hold the line when that evil day, when the attack really becomes intense in the heat of spiritual battle. Look, we have to be willing to embrace this reality. We can't be walking around naive as Christians and just thinking sometimes we're having a bad day or maybe it's just a, sometimes we have to realize, wait a minute, maybe this is spiritual warfare. And therefore, I need to approach this in a spiritual way. I'm in a combat zone of evil, warring against what's good and godly. And let me tell you this, the enemy is not going to give up ground easily. And if you are seeking to walk with Jesus closely, if you're seeking to do the work of the Lord or do what's right and pleasing to the Lord, I hate to break your bubble, but the devil's not going to go, proud of you, never seen a Christian like you before. He's not going to give you a round of applause. He's going to turn up the intensity, and he's going to bring attack all the more and do things to with, you know, withstand us and stop us. First Peter 5 says we have to be sober and alert because our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking who can devour. That's the picture the Bible gives of our adversary, our enemy. And the only way to avoid defeat and destruction, Paul says, Timothy, is you got to keep fighting to finish. If you don't keep fighting and keep waging a warfare and remember you're in a battle worth engaging in, you're not going to finish, man. And he mentions in the next few breaths, those who shipwrecked, those who didn't keep fighting, those who opted not to stay strong and the incredible problems that came to them. Paul's going to tell Timothy in a second letter, 2 Timothy 2, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he can please him who enlisted him as a soldier. 
So the Bible says we have to be alert and aware, hey, just like a soldier in a combat zone, they have to in some ways realize, look, I'm in a combat zone. I can't live like the rest of civilians in society because I'm in a spiritual battle. And sometimes Christians, we, we find ourselves being overcome by the spiritual warfare and, and suffering great loss because we're just so entangled in the affairs of this life that we're truly not able to fight the Lord's battles to the degree he wants us to and to have victory. And another thing Paul says there to Timothy is he says, Timothy, you must endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's calling for a little military grit there. And you know, if there's anything sometimes I think the body of Christ needs a little bit more of is that perhaps we wouldn't be such cream puff Christians and have a little more grit spiritually. You know, and this isn't a prophetic word, that there's someone who looked at the weather this morning and went, oh, I can do YouTube. I'm not going out in that. You didn't do that. But I mean, it's, it, I say that not to be sarcastic, but just to say sometimes some of the soft excuses that I make as a Christian sometimes for not pressing on or staying, it, it's kind of, kind of shameful and embarrassing when we realize that sometimes, I mean, think of the things we will endure through, push through, the hardship. Will, I mean, we will soldier on for certain things should we not do that for the king of kings and the kingdom of God? That we wouldn't say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking my territory. And that we'd have a little grit once in a while spiritually to stay on track faithfully, serving the Lord, reading his word, praying, being serious about the battles of the Lord when they're set before us, that we wouldn't just give in. You know, I think of numerous occasions where situations would arise and I'd find you know, people in the body of Christ, I think of family situations that arose a few times where you almost kind of just want to give in to, well, I, whatever, and, 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 and look, I'm going to take the sword of God's and I'm going to shove it down the throat of the roaring lion. I'm not backing down on that. I am going to take the sword of God's spirit, and I'm at least going to shove it. He may devour me, but I'm going to shove it down his throat on the way through. And, you know, sometimes that willingness to be able to do such, sometimes, you know what, you stick a sword down the throat of even a roaring lion, he might back down. He might retreat a little bit. I don't say you should wrestle him, but take the sword of the Spirit and shove it down his throat. Stand on the word of God and let that be your defense. And Paul here calls Timothy to wage a good warfare. And I think in this verse, he almost somewhat alludes to two things we have to have reliance upon to wage a good warfare. And I would say simply, they are this. That is the word of God and the ministry of the spirit of God. Because prophecy connects to both of those things. Prophecy is speaking forth God's word. And God's word is a powerful weapon against the devil. And prophecy is a part of the ministry of the spirit of God. It's a part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit being in operation. And Paul refers to one of these gifts operating, and we need to be yielded, folks, to allowing the Holy Spirit and his ministry to operate among our lives as Christians and among the church. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating among the body of Christ. So the word of God and the ministry of the Spirit of God help us to overcome. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he was describing warfare, he said, look, you may walk in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. He says, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal human effort. 
but he says they are weapons that are mighty in God. They have divine power to pull down strongholds and to stand against those things that exalt themselves against what is true of God's knowledge and right. So wanting Timothy to be victorious rather than suffer defeat to wage this good warfare, he goes on, verse 19, to say there, having faith and a good conscience, which some, he says, having rejected, sadly, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. So Paul further advises here how to fight the good fight and how to be victorious in the war spiritually. He says, Timothy, let me give you a little advice how to win that war, how to wage good warfare. The first thing he says there in verse 19 is you have to keep having faith. Keep having faith. And there, there's no definite article. At the end of the verse, he talks about the faith, definite article, the Christian faith. Here he's talking about exercising faith. That word having that he uses there, having faith, it's a term that literally means to cling or to hold tightly to. So he's saying, Timothy, here's how you wage a good warfare. You have to cling or hold tightly to these two things. First of all, you've got to hold on to your faith, son. It's imperative, he's telling Timothy here, that you keep believing what is right and that you hold on to trusting God, that you don't let your belief Waver, Timothy, cling tightly to the basic doctrines of biblical Christianity. Timothy, keep believing the Lord. Keep trusting that he's with you and that he can do things to help you. His faith was a major part of his protection in battle to keep his mind safe from error. Because we all know it is crucial to keep believing what we know to be right and true. Because what is the devil's fundamental attack when he fires his arrows at us? It's lies. It's deception. Jesus called him the father of lies and said that when he speaks lies, that's his native language. So the primary way the devil attacks is trying to deceive, to bring deception in various forms, to misguide our thinking. The devil wants to disrupt our trust toward God. The devil wants to do what he can to put ideas in our mind, like he did with Adam and Eve, to question God to question God's word. As soon as you hear the devil's voice in the scripture, what's the first thing he's doing? He's prompting them in temptation, question God's nature, question God's goodness. God's just holding back on you. Did God really? I mean, he just knows, and he's trying to get them to question God, to question his nature. And he says, did God really say? What's he also doing? Question the word of God. You can't believe. I mean, I know people say that's what God said. But you can't believe what God said. He's trying to get them to question the word of God. And this is how the devil works. In deception and lies, he tries to bring confusion into our minds. He tries to bring doubt into our minds and discouragement and condemnation and division. And look, all of those things can be overcome by faith, by continuing to believe that what God says is true and right, no matter what I feel like no matter what's going on in my head, no matter what kind of discouraging thoughts or no matter what kind of confusion is happening within, I am going to believe the fundamental truths of Christianity and no one will make me waver from that and I'm going to keep believing what I know is true and know is right no matter what's going on and I see with my eyes. I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to keep believing what is true despite what anyone's saying. What anyone else is doing, I'm going to keep believing God. And at times we have to be willing, despite what we're going through. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's discouragement. 
And you have to keep believing in the midst of your doubt and discouragement. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep believing what God said that God would do, his promises, despite our own failures and sometimes thoughts of condemnation and struggles and feeling horrible about ourselves and worrying about our future because of our failures. Listen, don't listen to the condemning voice of the devil. You keep believing what God says is true, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Keep believing what God says. Keep believing what's true. Boy, it is amazing how choosing to yield to unbelief makes a person very vulnerable to the devil. And in connection to that, on the other side of that, it's important to realize how having faith and choosing to keep believing can be the determining factor to overcome in spiritual battle, to overcome the evil one by continuing to keep believing. Keep believing what is true and right because many of those battles are going to be waged in the mind where the devil attacks our thinking patterns and tries to disrupt our trust and our reliance upon God. And that's why it's important, regardless of what's going on, regardless of what anyone's saying or what we're feeling, to keep believing. That's why Paul in chapter 6 of this letter is going to say to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. In essence, he's saying to Timothy, look, I know you're timid. I know you're passive. I know sometimes, like all of us, Timothy, and Paul's going to say later, I fought the good fight of faith. Paul's saying we all wrestle at times. But he's saying, Timothy, there comes a time when sometimes it's a battle to keep believing. But keep battling. Don't give in. You keep believing, he says, Timothy. You fight the good fight of faith. You keep believing what is true. You keep trusting no matter what it looks like or feels like. It's a good thing to keep fighting for and not giving in to believing that which is true. You know, in first, uh, John chapter 5, he tells us there that all God's children can overcome the world. And he says, and that victory is through faith, the power of faith to continue to believe Keep believing no matter what you're battling through. And he says, Timothy, you got to hold on to faith. And secondly, he says, you got to keep clinging and holding on to, he says in our verse there, a good conscience. And again, we've talked about conscience before. The conscience is something God-given to every human being that's born. And it basically functions within us like an internal judge. It evaluates what's going on. It evaluates what we're doing. And then it says, you're guilty where it says, no, you're innocent, that's okay. And our conscience kind of helps like an internal judge to help us evaluate and know what's right and wrong. It also functions like an internal moral compass. It helps us detect when we're on track and when we've gotten off track. And a healthy working conscience does this within us. A good conscience is one that's listening to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, speaking to us inwardly, and helps us then to keep responding right and staying out of guilt and a, a bad or a guilty conscience because we've transgressed what God told us. And a good conscience helps us tremendously if we are doing what is right and letting it guide us as our moral compass as God speaks to us because it will keep us from becoming full of shame and guilt for rejecting the truth. For looking at the compass and the compass saying, you're not going north right now, you're going south. And you have an option at that point. You can say, well, I could trust the compass and follow the compass. Or you can say, ah, stick it in your back pocket and ignore it and just keep going south. 
But the tragedy is that's how we wander way further off course. And before we know it, we're doing dark and wrong things in our private life because we rejected and didn't listen to our conscience. And so Paul says, Timothy, look, you've got to hold tightly to maintaining a good conscience. In Acts 23 and 24, Paul spoke of striving to have a good conscience free of guilt before God and men. And he says, Timothy, this is essential in the battle. You got to keep a good conscience because it will help you in the battlefield. If your conscience is clear and your conscience is clean, Timothy, you can keep alert and you'll be hearing the voice of the Lord clearly. And you can keep responding and letting the compass of your conscience direct your paths. And also a clean conscience that's blameless and healthy and not ridden with guilt and shame because of living a double life helps us to continue to be useful in serving the Lord. Because if our conscience is not kept in a good condition and it becomes defiled by compromise and sin and it's full of guilt and hypocrisy, you are going to be so weakened inwardly and so shamed and so discouraged and beaten up because of Satan's schemes and attacks, you're going to become useless on the battlefield because you have a guilty, defiled conscience within and God doesn't want that. God says, no, I want you to have a good, healthy conscience. You know, it's often been said before, a man with a holy character and a good conscience is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. Because with integrity and sincerity, they can let the Lord use them without a sense of shame and guilt. And look, if we begin to neglect our conscience, sadly, the Bible says we can begin to damage it and defile it in such a way where that conscience become like a you know burnt and seared, and then it loses sensation properly. And it is such a tragic thing where we could literally become a person. We say this sometimes, that person has no conscience. It's like they have no conscience anymore. And that is a scary place to be where the conscience loses any concern and a person doesn't even care anymore. They just completely become hard and numb, and they're not even sensitive to anything that's wrong or evil. And tragically, Paul says here, verse 19, look at it. He says, that's what some failed to actually do is to hold on to their faith and to hold on to a good conscience. And look what happens. He says, having rejected those things, he says, they have suffered shipwreck because they rejected those things that Paul's telling Timothy to hold on to. That word reject means to cast aside as worthless, to throw something overboard as if it's unimportant for the journey. Hey, we don't need this. Just toss it overboard. And Paul says here, some, instead of holding tightly to their faith, they gave in and they just stopped believing what was right. And they just stopped believing what was true. They gave in to that evil heart of unbelief within. And others, he said, instead of holding tightly to a good working conscience and keeping their conscience healthy, they rejected their conscience again and again and again and again. And ultimately, it defiled and ruined their thinking. And as a result, what does Paul say happened? Verse 19, they ended up suffering shipwreck. That's a strong term there, suffering shipwreck. It speaks of severe loss and great damage. It pictures a badly damaged vessel that suffered severe loss and perhaps left people struggling even for survival. And look what he says. He says, they suffered shipwreck. Take notice what he says, verse 19, concerning the faith, the faith, definite article, they suffered shipwreck. So that is, 
the Christian faith. They had done certain things that had led to horribly damaging outcomes in their Christian faith. Paul just uses language without much further explanation. They had suffered some great loss in some way regarding their personal life as a Christian. They had pursued a course where they had wandered off track, rejecting the compass of their conscience, and wandered, and it resulted in tremendous personal loss to themselves, to their Christian life, to others. The image here is lives that were sailing off course, and they never rerouted, and ultimately they ended up in shipwreck. And when people are neglecting, listen, when they're neglecting allowing Jesus to steer their ship, the only other option is shipwreck. When you stop letting Jesus captain the ship and guide you and refuses direction, the result is typically we will suffer as people shipwreck and severe loss in many forms, great damage. And it may not only be to the individual, but sometimes it's also to the other people who are on board with them in the journey who end up being the ones who are victimized as well. And God is trying to prompt and alert us, please, Avoid the wreckage. You know, God in his love is saying, I don't want this to be your outcome. This happened to some, but it doesn't happen to all. It doesn't have to happen to any, but he says it can happen. And so God's lovingly warning here through Timothy concerning the faith. He says, Timothy, some have suffered shipwreck. Look, let us remember this morning, there is great risk. Don't trivialize it. There is great risk in giving in to unbelief in deciding to no longer believe what you know is right and true. There's tremendous risk to that. Don't go there. Faith is a substance of things, you know, not seen. This, the, but things, the evidence of things that we haven't yet seen, but we're trusting. I don't see it, but Lord, I believe. I choose to believe. Keep believing. Keep believing. And in the same way, there's great risk to living in ongoing sin and refusing your conscience. And continuing to neglect your conscience and to become hardened, it can steer a person into spiritual shipwreck. And Paul reveals this is a reality because look what he says in verse 20. He gives two literal examples. He says, concerning the faith, some have suffered shipwreck, verse 19. Verse 20, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul reveals this is a reality by giving two examples. And notice here, this is very strong language describing some form of spiritual or church discipline. These men had in some ways stepped away from hanging on to a good conscience and holding on to their faith and progressed to a point where they rejected the faith and cast aside a good conscience. And they themselves were heading towards shipwreck or who had already shipwrecked in the past and what Paul's alluding to here in verse 20, follow his reasoning, is before they took others on board with them into the wreckage, before that transpired and they shipwrecked the whole crew and caused severe loss to others on board, at a certain point, Paul made the difficult but right decision to remove them from the ship before they themselves took everyone else and the rest of those on board into the shipwreck with them. Now, who these men are who shipwrecked themselves, we don't exactly know for certain. Clearly, they were doing what's evil and influencing others in a very harmful way. 
it is interesting regarding Hymenaeus, the one man mentioned there, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see the same name mentioned there. Paul says there, avoiding unhealthy talking that leads to ungodly behavior for their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, he says, who strayed concerning the faith, saying the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some or destroy some people's faith by their wrong message. Clearly, their message and their influence, Paul says, if this is the same Hymenaeus, he says it was like cancer. Their message was like cancer. Their influence was like cancer, and cancer spreads and ruins more and more and more. And so it must be dealt with radically. He says these men, in their cancerous influence and teaching, they were overthrowing the faith of some people. They were literally causing people to err off track and disrupting people's faith. Now, Alexander, we find that name mentioned as well in 2 Timothy 4. There, Paul says, Alexander, the metal worker, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. And then Paul says this, you too should be on your guard against this man because he strongly opposed our message and resisted us. So Paul says of this man, Alexander, perhaps this very man, he was resisting biblical truth, the message of God's word, the gospel message, and resisting spiritual leaders like a dangerous rebel. And whoever Hymenaeus and Alexander were, clearly they were so personally corrupt, cancerous, defiled, they were so influential in unhealthy ways, they were risking sinking the whole ship. And they were causing severe harm to God's family. And at a certain point in spiritual discipline, you might say Paul brought about excommunication from the church, from the flock of God, in the best interests of the entire fellowship. He says, of these two men, whom I delivered to Satan, that doesn't sound good, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, what does this mean, delivered to Satan? Well, understand, the church is the domain of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a privilege to be a part of the church because we're under the domain and the authority of the Lord, under his care as the good shepherd. We're under his authority and his blessing. And there's a great benefit. There's a safe and healthy domain of being a part of the church and a part of the Lord's family. The world out there is the domain of Satan. That's what the Bible teaches. And so out there in the world, that is the domain of Satan where he is harshly ruling and seeking to ruin people's lives. And Paul says here, there came a point with these two men where in order to honor the Lord and out of love for his flock, I put them out of the church and I put them back out to the godless world system, which is the domain of Satan. And he says, I had to put them back out there to remove them from the blessing and the privilege of under the Lord's covering and his church. And I put them back in the domain and the realm of Satan's work and Satan's activity out in the world. And the reason was to let them struggle and suffer for their own sin and for their own rebellion against the Lord, to sort of let Satan work them over a little bit back out in the world for a season so that in the suffering and the misery and the sin and the sorrow of the consequences of sin out in Satan's domain, Paul says that they might learn a lesson, a strong, sobering lesson not to blaspheme. That is not to disgracefully disrespect the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to irreverently hurt and harm the blood-bought 
bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, folks, since these men did not want the Lord to rule, Paul simply let them go back to trying to live under Satan's control over their life for a season. And Paul came to this place where in an effort to break their error and rebellion and to teach them a strong lesson, he put them out of the church and he says, you're out. Until you want to repent, you can't continue to be cancer. You're going to defile the whole body. And in a sense, he surgically removed them and put them out into the world. Look, we cannot dishonor the Lord brazenly nor harm God's people continually without consequence. And love, true love, protects. It does what's in the best interests of people. And out of love for the Lord and out of love for his flock, it required Paul to say, look, no more patience with this. No more toleration for willful, conscious, sinful, rebellious activity. And there came a point where Paul surgically removed them like cancer. And look, there does come a point. What an interesting illusion. There does come a point when surgically removing cancer is the right decision. There comes a point when that is the right decision to surgically remove it in an effort, why? To spare loss and more damage in the whole rest of the body. To do what is necessary to seek healing and recovery of health. And look, we see in the New Testament times when these things are referred to. Jesus in Matthew 18 spoke of dealing with sin on relational levels. Even to the point of the church, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother, Matthew 18, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And you bring to their attention this sin or this thing that's happened, and, and you try and talk it out and try and win over your brother between you and them personally. Oh, they sinned against me. I'm not talking to them. No, they sinned against you. You're required to talk to them. That's what Jesus said. I'm not talking to them until they come say they're sorry. That's called your flesh. By faith, the word of God says, no, we go and bring to their attention their sin, the offense, and we try and get resolution. He says, if they don't listen, then you go get one or two other mature brothers or sisters in the Lord, not who are your chums, brothers and sisters who are mature, and you bring them in to help mediate, to listen, to try and help reconcile the situation that's transpired, to try and begin by the mouth of two or three witnesses a thing or established. And sometimes that extra person or two can cause a person to be humble or broken or repentant. And that may make them feel, oh my goodness, maybe I am wrong here. And, and that may bring about repentance. And Paul, or Jesus says there, if that still doesn't work and they refuse to hear them, tell it to the church. And he says, and if they won't listen to the church body, he says, if they refuse even to hear the church, let them become to you like a heathen. In other words, put them out of the fellowship until they're willing to repent. Put them out from under the covering of the Lord's people and the Lord's blessing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we studied 1 Corinthians together. Paul speaks of church discipline in great detail there. In a whole chapter, he describes how a man, he says, had done something that was more gross and sinful. He says, people in the world don't even tolerate this stuff. Remember, the man had his own father's wife. So there was adultery and incest going on. And the church at Corinth was so proud of their loving acceptance. We're the tolerant church. We're about love. We're about love. And sometimes that mentality is, in a sense, are you saying you're more loving than Jesus? We're about love. Well, Jesus said love deals with sin. <laughs> love deals with it. Love doesn't tolerate it. 
And this was going on, this brazen immorality, and they were just living openly, and everybody was just kind of allowing it, kind of just ignoring it like it was going. And Paul said, look, what are you doing? Paul says, I'm not there with you, but I'm with you in spirit, and I've already judged this. This is wrong. And he says, I've told you before, you don't keep company with someone who professes the name of Christ, but consciously continues to live in sin. And there's the qualifying act there. They profess to be a believer. Paul says, but they profess to be a believer, but they belligerently, consciously, consistently keep living in willful disregard of the word of God. Paul says, in that situation, there comes a point where you pull back fellowship from them. And Paul says, and then there also comes a point where you expel them from the fellowship, like putting leaven out so that it doesn't leaven and pollute the whole lump. And Paul says, I'm not telling you to do this with people in the world, because Paul says, you'd have to go out of the world. There's too many sinful people. But in the church... If someone names the name of Christ, they're supposed to depart from iniquity. And when someone says, I'm a Christian, but they're living in conscious, and somebody talks to them and talks to them and you pray for them and you rebuke them and you counsel them, and they just, I don't care, I'm a Christian. And I, He says, there comes a point where the right thing to do is, Paul says, you deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, let them hurt and struggle physically and in their human experience in hopes that God wakes them up and their soul is spared and the whole body of Christ is spared. So Paul here gives this very, very strong language, but look, something very, very important because we must realize spiritual attack of the devil is real and he is seeking to lead people into shipwreck and how important that we realize that, that we keep fighting the good fight and be soldiers for Jesus. And also, ladies and gentlemen, that we have enough love and courage in the body of Christ that we don't let anyone hijack the lordship. Unacceptable. I become a knucklehead, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard. The Lord's the captain. And we have to continue to honor him and keep walking in faith and doing what we know to be true so that we can finish well. Let's stand together. Let's pray.